Welcome to Convention Pulpit, Wesleyan Voices Past and Present, brought to you through the Ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention. Visit our website for an entire library of great sermons and more information on this ministry, www.ihconvention.com. One of the finest preachers to ever stand behind this sacred desk was R.G. Humble. He preached this sermon back in 1990 at the Midwest Pilgrim Holiness Camp Meeting, and he titles it, Getting Rid of the Root. I know you're going to enjoy this excellent sermon. I want to read to you again where I read some from the other day uh, in one of the services from the book of Hebrews. I'd like to begin the reading, and if you want to follow it, I'll call the reference, and we'll go through a, a ways through the book and sort of peruse a little bit and uh, see it in its context as well as the text itself. It says in chapter 2, For both he that sanctifieth, verse 11, for both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. I like unity like that. Do you catch the significance of that? For both he that sanctifieth, you know who sanctifies? Jesus Christ sanctifies. That's the one. John the Baptist said that, said, I baptize with water, but this one that's coming after me, whose shoes I'm not worthy to carry, he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. And the Bible says they were sanctified by the Holy Ghost. But it's Jesus who is the baptizer, and he made it all possible. Then he said in verse 12 of the next chapter, Take heed, brethren, now listen to the admonishment, lest there be in any of you. Let's find out who they are. Verse 1 of that chapter. Wherefore, holy brethren, holy in the sense that folks are converted. Some of them were sanctified of the Hebrews. Some only converted, but that's a glorious experience not to be minimized. But they were holy in the sense that there is an imputed holiness to converted people. Holiness begins in regeneration. But now he says to these people that he has addressed as holy Christian believers, take heed, brethren, lest there be in any, in, in, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. He was writing to the brethren or to the believers. And yet, within them, he recognized, at least in some of them, who hadn't been sanctified, an evil heart of unbelief. He then admonishes them in the, them in the last part of this chapter, and also throughout chapter 4, that there's, there remaineth therefore a rest for the people of God. There's a rest from the carnal, civil war of a dual double-mindedness within and that by way of course of cleansing so he admonishes them to come boldly to the throne of grace then in verse 1 of chapter 6 he said now leave the principles of the doctrine of Christ let us go on into perfection 
Then in chapter 7 through 10, he tells them that this is brought or wrought, brought about, wrought in our hearts by the blessed and wondrous holy atonement made possible through Jesus Christ. Oh, just think about that sometime when you're reading verse chapter 7 through 10. There is no place in the Bible where the atonement is, is, is set forth in such, such tremendous fashion as this, the blessed atonement, and how he can through that atonement meet all of our need. He, he said, wherefore, right in the middle of it, he is, he is able also to, to save to the uttermost. Some people say, well, I've got to keep that old carnal mind because that's what keeps me humble. A lot of people say that. I've met lots of Calvinists that say that. I've met Amish people that say that. I've met people from almost all walks of life that say, well, you've got, you've got to keep that old nature, that old bad nature, along with the good nature you have. You've got to keep it. I want to tell you, friends, that old nature is sin. And there is nowhere in the annals of history of men or angels where sin ever kept anybody humble. Sin never had that quality nor that ability. In fact, it was exactly the, it was exactly the sin that was the opposite of humility in Lucifer, the archangel. It got him kicked out of heaven. Keeping a carnal mind doesn't provide any route to humility at all. No, no, not at all. But it's by the precious blood. Chapter 11 tells us, and I'm ready to preach now just very momentarily. Chapter 11 tells us that the experience of holiness is wrought by faith. That's the way it's appropriate. It's through the blood it comes by faith. Mr. Wesley talked about that. He said he saw, he and his brother saw that, that uh, one is sanctified or one is made holy by faith just as one is, made, is converted by faith. One is brought to justification by faith, regeneration by faith. And so one is brought to holiness as well by faith. That's the way it is wrought. Then chapter 12 said, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us. If you heard me read this before, don't worry, I'm not preaching the same message, same thought, but not the same message. The content will all be different. He said, Follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord looking diligently lest any man fail of the grace of God. Any believer that's already started for heaven has the grace, lest they fail, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief, and thereby depart from the living God, lest there be in any of you a root of bitterness springing up and trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. Now, I am speaking to you tonight on this issue of getting rid of the root so that you can bear the fruit. You must, if you've been converted, see the necessity of going on quickly to heart holiness. We've had a host of people that have been truly converted in this camp meeting. It's wonderful. 
Brother Lemon, I appreciate your prayers. Many others with you that have prayed around this altar for seekers. Thank God for mothers and dads, sons and daughters who've been genuinely converted and brothers and sisters and whoever. But I admonish you, I beg of you, linger not outside of Canaan. Do not try to move along without coming into the Canaan land experience, into the abiding blessing of the personal baptism with the Holy Ghost and fire or his abiding presence within. Come, get rid of the root so that you may bring forth much fruit. In that 15th chapter of John, there were three states of the bearing of fruit. There was a time there in the early part of that chapter when there was no fruit being born, and then there was a time when there was some fruit being born. And then another verse later, there was more fruit. And then there was much fruit. That's not four works of grace, nor is it three works of grace. It's two works of grace. No fruit, then genuine conversion. Then genuine regeneration, some fruit. Purging followed, and then more fruit. Abiding continued, and that's continuous. That's on. That's growth in grace and an abiding grace at that. And then there is much fruit. More and more fruit is another way to say it. Well, thank God, that's what the Lord wants to do. Jesus went to Calvary for. One of the reasons he went to Calvary. In fact, it's the, it's the climaxing reason. I mean, all the rest of them come along. He went there to save us, yes, but his purpose in saving us is to sanctify us, and sanctifying us gets us ready to go to heaven if we abide in the blessing, if we remain true and walk in all the light. I used to hear often, sung in the revival meetings, uh, this song, Let me lose myself and find it, Lord, in thee. Forty years ago, I hardly held any revivals, but what, be what, but what that song was sung uh, just, just so very often. There's a little different version of it now where they've changed a word or two, but essentially, if kept in mind what is being spoken about by the original author, it means the same. I've only just two or three times in the last nine years of full-time evangelism on this end of my ministry, I have, it's only been two or three times that I've heard anybody sing. Let me lose myself and find it, Lord, in thee. May old self be slain, my friends see only thee. Somewhere along the line, some folks found it was easier to sing about it than, they, than it was to go that route. And some folks, instead of going that route, instead of going that route, just laid it aside. I'm not worried about laying aside the song. Songs come and go, I guess, some of them. But that truth does not come and go. Unless you're willing to let put yourself so on the altar that you mean to present self a living sacrifice until God can do something in your heart till the matter of suppression is not your present day experience but rather cleansing from Friends, you'll slip backwards. You'll quickly slip backwards. Thank God for the purifying element of the atonement that sanctifies and cleanses us 
and takes care of this awful, awful inbred sin called total depravity. Total depravity. That's the extent to which every person is affected by the racial corruption that has passed down to us from the fall of mankind. That does not get converted when you get converted. Don't minimize conversion. In conversion, all of the sins you've ever committed are obliterated. They are removed as from you as far as the east is from the west. Forgiveness is full. Regeneration is total in that sense of being re regenerated. Quickened is the way the Bible gives it in the book of Ephesians. Resurrected. That's full. That's wonderful. But something lingers in reference to sin. If we're saved from all sin, then what has lingered? It's the principle of sin. You see, you had this sin, this principle of sin, before you, be, before you sinned in action and thus became guilty. You were not born guilty. You were born innocent. But you were born with a tendency and a bent and a twist that made it easier for you when you came to the points of decision of right and wrong to make your decision for wrong than to make it for right. Man, you don't have to teach your children to, make, to, to, to know how to sin. I, they just automatically know how to do that. They automatically know how to do it. So I don't understand it. I accept that I remember it in my own background that I knew how to go that way, how to be deceitful, how to go that way. Well, God has a way of dealing with that thing that didn't get converted when you got converted. God doesn't convert the old man. God puts him off of the property if you'll let God do that. If you won't think it's sacrilegious, God becomes a bouncer. That is, he puts him out off of the premises. That's the only way that he'll deal with that old corruption, that old nature, that old carnal mind. He cleanses it from you. He takes it away. You've all heard the story, perhaps, of the little boy that was told by his father at breakfast one morning, Johnny, I've heard that your little neighbor friend has the measles, and I don't want you to go play with him for a few days. I'll let you know when the danger is past. You just stay away. We don't want to get the measles over here, so you just stay away. Don't play. Don't go over there. He's got the measles. Daddy went off to work, and Mama was busy around the house, and little old Johnny was playing in the backyard, and he heard a tap on the window from the neighbor's house. He saw his little friend over there inside what he knew was his bedroom, and what he also knew was almost like a playroom because the little neighbor boy had a lot of toys. And the little old neighbor boy tapped on the window, held up a toy, and said to Johnny by the crook of his finger, like this, come over here. But he remembered what his father had said. Then he really wanted to go. He really wanted to play. It's natural to want to go and play like that. And so he looked to where Mama was, and she was in the front of the house. He knew where Daddy was. He was off to work. So he slipped through the hole in the hedge and went in the back door and slipped into the neighbor boy's room and played a little while. And then he became very guilty. He felt very guilty. So he said to his little neighbor friend, I got to go. I got to get out of here. And he slipped out through the back door and came back through the hole in the hedge and got down and started playing again, just 
just like nothing had ever happened, just like it had all passed off as though it had not happened at all. But he didn't feel just right all day long after that. And that night when they would, his daddy was going to tuck him in bed and his mama was standing by, they said, now, Johnny, you, you, you get down and say your prayers with us. And he said, Daddy, Mommy, I can't pray. Well, sure you can pray. You always pray. No, no, I can't pray. Why can't you pray? I just don't want to tell you why, but I, I, I just can't pray. And his dad slipped an arm around him, and his mother slipped an arm around from the other side and said, Johnny, feel free to tell us. And Johnny sobbed the story out the, about the enticement and about how he'd felt since he had done it. And those arms gripped him a little tighter, held him a little closer as he sobbed out his story, and they said, we forgive you. And he felt better. In fact, he felt like the guilt was gone. And he just drifted off to dreamland real quick that night. Now, all of us, as whatever we are, as good holiness people, we know that settled the question, didn't it? That took care of the whole problem, didn't it? It took care of the guilt factor as far as mom and dad were concerned. But three or four days later, daddy said at the breakfast table, I do declare, I believe we've got the measles after all in our house. For he saw the spots that began to evidence. You see, it won't be long, converted dear ones, till the evidence will be there that there's a germ deep in the nature that remained after conversion because you had it before you, when you came into this world, before you became guilty, before you slipped through the hole in the hedge and went over to do what was wrong. You had it. It needs cleansing, not forgiveness. You aren't responsible for having it, but you are responsible for getting rid of it. Are you listening tonight? You're responsible for getting rid of it. And I assure you that the blood of Jesus Christ goes deep enough. It goes deeper than the stain of sin has gone. What if you keep that sin? Then it will evidence itself through the spots. It will evidence itself in your nature. It will evidence itself in your tendencies. And you won't be forever able always to suppress it. For a while, you may, but not so long. It will evidence itself in, it, in your heart, if not outwardly in your heart. Through suppression, you may keep it from coming out, but it will evidence in itself in the heart by envy. Envious. This is the sin of covetousness. It's the sin that involves all the rest of the Ten Commandments. It's the mental sin. It's the sin. The rest of them are overt sins in some way or another. But the last of the Ten Commandments is an inward sin. It's, there's, there's not an overt way to, to, to perform that one or to enact that one. That is one of the mind. That's one of the heart is another way to say it. It's envy. It may come out as jealousy, resenting the attention that somebody else that received that you thought 
maybe was due you or their success. It may result in pride, conceited self-esteem, selfishness, self-desire. It may come, come out in inner irritability, fretfulness, stubbornness. Stubbornness is a domineering attitude of friends. This could be on either side of the fence in the marriage relationship. Stubbornness. A wife can be stubborn toward her husband, and a husband can be stubborn overlording the wife beyond scriptural, beyond scriptural permissions. In fact, there is no scriptural permission for overlording. But there's plenty of scriptural admonition for loving. Husbands, love your wives. And the wife that is loved with a Christian love and a God-sent love is more often than not, unless something has come into the picture, willing to scripturally obey a hard, combative spirit. Did you, ever, did you ever attend the funeral of a cursing man and you were amazed to hear the pastor say, we know that this man, his, his remains, are, we're placing them in Mother Earth, but we know his soul has gone back to God and we know that he's now at rest and he's at peace. Have you ever attended any of those funerals where preachers have a tendency to preach people into heaven and you knew and... People around, though, that man knew that that man was a cursing man. No conversion, not a Christian. And yet pastors sometimes, in many circles, have a tendency to do that. You say, well, I know, I know that's not right. A preacher shouldn't do that, and that is right. He shouldn't. He must not do it, but thousands of them are doing it. You say, I know that a cursing man, cursing in the name of Jesus Christ, couldn't, wouldn't be ready for heaven if they died in that state. Right. But what about a carnal mind, man? What about a man with a twist in his nature and he hasn't been willing to let the blood of Jesus Christ cleanse it and sanctify that nature? What about that? It's a besetting sin. Oh, that unfairness. Those unclean thoughts that sanctioned pictures that were as evil as hell itself and conversation unbecoming to holiness or to God and reading that was unfamiliar with heaven but very familiar with hell. Programs, whether listened to or seen in any fashion, that depict an, uh, bringing out of the mind bringing from the mind evil thoughts and evil suggestive looks and lust. That's why Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, gave that indictment, it goes for anybody, although he used, the, as so, much, so many times the Bible uses the masculine. He said, you've heard thou shalt not commit adultery, but I say unto you, if thou shalt look upon a woman to lust after her, and it's been rightly said, the woman that 
dresses to entice the look is just as much under the condemnation of God's of the Bible, the Bible wrought from God, brought from God, as the man that looks. Ladies, be real ladies. And men, be real men. Dress like men, men. And ladies, dress like ladies. A double life. One thing at home and something else away from home. One thing at home and something else at church. You say, but you can't be converted to be that way. You can have that unconverted thing in your heart because this is what we're talking about mainly, a condition in the heart. I hope you've got it suppressed. Something better than that. You can have it cleansed. You can have it taken care of. You can have it the need met. It may evidence itself as that trouble in your conscience that raises a doubt about your state of grace. For the familiar spirit that you have within you and its linkage with hell, it raises a state about a doubt. If you're saved, you're on the road to heaven. The only thing I'm trying to get you to do is to pass into Canaan. Come quickly. Move quickly toward the sanctifying grace that Paul prayed so fervently for the Thessalonians that they would receive after recognizing their patience of hope and their work of faith and their, and their love, the work of love, patience of hope. That's, that's, he knew, he recognized what they are, but he prayed for them that they might go on, move on. This is in the motive area. I'd like to say that everybody that gets converted has good manners. Some of the rough edges that people have from former uh, non-training means, means that they may have some manners to correct, but it does correct an awful lot when we get converted. But I'll tell you something that will correct the motives, and it may even get ahead of the manners. You may have to learn a while in regard to the manners, but you can have something that corrects the motives, and that's the cleansing blood of Jesus to sanctify you holy and give you that perfect love that our brother was talking about today. Thank God you can get rid of that old nature in the heart. Are you rid of it tonight? This little story, I don't want to preach too much longer, just a little while. I got a couple of stories to tell you. They mean something. Here's one. Many years ago, when I was in college, I came home to work during the summer for the Farm Bureau. It was the department of the Farm Bureau and that large Farm Bureau that had to do with a, a plumbing and electrical work. And the idea was in those days that we went out from the Farm Bureau to mainly to put in, uh, modernize the farms in reference to water under pressure and new bathrooms and new kitchen facilities that meant that everything was, had, had running water. I hadn't worked there very long until Mr. Harlan, the director, received a phone call from some place where he'd put in a whole pumping system and all that water under pressure out on the farm. He received a call from the lady of the farm. She said, our water supply is somewhat diminished from what it used to be. We're not getting as much water. We need, the pump needs some attention. Mr. Harlan said, we'll be there. But we were very busy, as plumbers often are and electricians. And so we didn't get there that week. And the next Monday she called and she said, Mr. Harlan, we have less water than we had last week. 
It's diminishing yet. He said, we're going to get out there just as quick as we can, but it went another week. She called the third week, and she was loaded, and she said, we are not getting but a trickle. It's not enough for the needs, and if you're coming, come today, and if you're not, let me know. We'll call someone else, and Mr. Harlan said, we'll be there just in a few minutes, and we started out. On the way out, he said, really, I don't think there's anything wrong with the pump. I don't think there's anything wrong with the well, he said, nor the pump. She thought maybe their water supply was low or that something was wrong with the pump itself. He said, I don't think there's anything wrong with either one. He said the kind of a system, and he explained the kind of a system it was. Later on, I became very well acquainted with all those systems and the, when we'd, we'd put a lot of them in that summer. But it was one of those jet pumps where the two pipes come down for a ways and then they link together by a Y and then one pipe goes on down and the prime is held by the water going down from one pipe surging down through that pipe and up the other pipe and somehow it brings water up through that bottom pipe and on the bottom of the bottom pipe that sticks down the deepest in the well at the very bottom there's a foot valve that holds the prime and that's why they call it a jet pump he said almost always when we get a call like this like the nature of her call where the water is diminished and then maybe it will even completely cut off he said to it's something in that foot valve, some problem in the foot valve. Well, we went out, pulled everything up and out, and make a long story short, sure enough, in the screen of the foot valve, something was in there. It wouldn't have done to have told the lady of the house what we found in the foot valve. I would have wanted to wait at least to have waited at least these 40 years since the 40 some years since that time to have told her if she's still living because it would have been dangerous had we told her what she was drinking water through for those weeks preceding her first call and following her first call before we finally got there. And I wouldn't tell you tonight either but I can see that you're not going to listen to what the rest of my sermon unless I tell you what it was. It was what was left, it was what was left now, the remains, the decomposing remains, the well-shredded remains of a frog <laughs> sucked into that screen through which all of the water had passed for that time. Foot valve was completely cleansed Everything put back, put to normal, started everything up, and all went well. What are you saying, Brother Humble? I'm saying that if that old carnal nature is remained there, it sucks into the vitals of the blessing of the fountain of life more and more with every passing week. After you, especially after you know there is cleansing after you know that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses from all sin, after you know about the refining fire of God that can purge throughout, after you know that what David prayed for in the Old Testament is in vogue in the New Testament, and that is create in me, O Lord, a clean heart. You may be living on a plane. 
You may be living on a plane that really you haven't even thought of that. You've been living right up here in, in, in the glory world since your conversion. You haven't yet met this, but you will, and others of you have. And it's coloring everything. A frog in the well. God help us to sense it tonight. I know the Lord is here. I know he's here tonight in a special way. I'm just trying to sort it out. Dr. Joseph H. Smith tells this story, told this story. It's in one of his books. I'm going to pass from that one. I'd like to tell you one more personal than that. I used to pastor a fellow by the name of Harry Carter. Harry Carter. I don't think I've told you about him. He didn't speak very well. I haven't told you about him or not. I must be getting old. I can't remember. Ten-day meeting, can't remember some of the stories. I don't, have, I don't have my sermons memorized, as you can easily see. They'd be better if they were, I expect. Harry Carter. Well, it bears repeating. If I did, don't think I did. Harry Carter couldn't talk plain. Harry Carter was a member of my church when I came there back 1967. Harry Carter couldn't talk plain, but he was an exhorter, and he lived a holy life. Let me tell you about him. Forty years before, he was at a family reunion down in Kentucky with uh, other members of the family, and Bill and Ruby Smith, uh, excuse me, Bill and Ruby Thompson, uh, spoke to Harry and said, uh, Harry, come go home with us. They were second cousins. Harry didn't have much of a home. Harry went home with them. He stayed all these 40 years. They'd moved to Ohio, and he was a wonderful member of the church. Never pastored a more saintly fellow in my life than Harry Carter. There's two or three things I want to tell you quickly about Harry. He was an exhorter. He would stand and exhort the people to live a holy life. He always left you with something. He always gave you something in his testimonies or his exhortations. He would often attend other revivals and pastors would have him to testify because they knew they were going to get something from Harry. Not ranting and raving, but he couldn't speak plain, but he always left the congregation with something. Harry Carter was over at the church one night. He always came early for prayer. He and another young, uh, a young man brought him. And uh, it was Sunday night service. Service was at 7.30 at that time. And uh, I went over about 6.30 always went early and there he was they were standing with the janitor and his wife just inside the back doors of the church and uh, they hadn't gone to prayer yet just that they had just lingered a minute I don't know how they got into the conversation but they were talking about whether or not I think they were just trying to get Harry was so sincere about everything they just trying to lead him on see what he'd say and so they asked him they were asking him if he thought it would be all right if he thought it was right for people to wear wigs, a wig. Now, I wasn't really interested in the subject, and there may have been a time in my life where, where I knew the answer to that. But I've concluded after some years of maturing that if my wife would happen to go bald, I might think differently than I once thought about that, and so I don't make any big statements about whether it is or is not, depending on the circumstance about that. But I, I believe... Uh, you do well if you can to keep your own hair and not wear somebody else's. Somebody told me it's like wearing a cap. It's hot. So I don't advise it. 
But just because of what they were saying, I took the other side and uh, as, though, as though I were on the side that it was all right. And I don't even think I was in those days, but I knew Harry and I, I didn't know how far I could press him. And I said, uh, I said, oh, Harry, for Harry said when they asked that, I don't believe I would. I don't believe I would, he said. He didn't mean to think that was the right thing to do. And I said, well, Harry, does that mean also that if you lost your hand, you wouldn't let them give you an artificial hand? You know, I don't, I don't argue for wigs. Do you, you cut this out. I forgot I was with the pilgrim holiness. I probably wouldn't start this, but, but listen carefully. I said, do you, do you, do, would you not let them fit you with a hand? I said, if you lost your foot, would you uh, let them give you an artificial foot? Now, Harry was so sincere, and he wanted to stay consistent with what he just said about the wig, so he said, don't believe a wood. And I just went right on toward my study, and I looked back, and I said, I believe you would. But I just kept on going. We had a service that night. I didn't think any more about this. I don't know that. I don't think he even told my wife about the conversation. Wednesday night came, and Harry Carter, at 6 o'clock in the evening, had walked in from the country, was all dressed up for service, for a 7.30 service, and was pacing up and down on the sidewalk in front of the church in Parsonage. I said, Virginia, I see Harry out there. It's an hour and a half to a service. I better call him in, and we better see if he's had supper. And I went out on the porch and said, Harry, come on in here and wait over here. Harry motioned with his finger to me, and I went out. And I said, Harry, what's wrong? And Harry, with tears flowing down his cheeks, said, Pastor, you remember Sunday night? Well, I said, yes. What about it? He said, you remember about what we were talking of in the vestibule? Oh, oh yeah. Yeah, I remember about that, Harry. He said, I came early to ask you to forgive me. I believe I would, he said. <laughs> and he said, furthermore, I want you to take me in the church. Here's a man, 61 years old, saint of God. He said, take me in the church. I want you to pray with me. I shouldn't have said that back there Sunday night, what I said. I just kept right on walking toward the church and fished my keys out of my pocket with my arm around Harry. And we came down that center aisle and we got just ready to kneel where Harry thought I was going to pray for him like he'd requested. And I said, wait just a minute, Harry. We're going to kneel, but I can't pray for you. You've got to pray for me. I want to know how to live possessing the vessel in honor like you possess your vessel tender hearted forgiving one another even as Christ for as God hath for Christ's sake forgiven us and when he saw that I really meant it I had a prayer prayed for me and I asked God to help me. I must tell you about Harry, though. What a saint he was. Harry could pray down things. After he died a few days later, suddenly, 
Ruby and Bill shared this story with me. During that 40 years, they'd learned that he was a praying man, that he knew God, that he was like entertaining an angel unaware in their homes. Said Ruby concocted some kind of a tumor here on her shoulder back through the years sometime or another. The doctor said it's got to come off. But when she went home to report what the doctor had said, Harry said, Ruby, I think we ought to pray about this. And so they'd learned that Harry had this power of prayer, and so she didn't go to the doctor, back to the doctor, to have it removed. And Harry went to praying about it. But it lingered, and it grew more fearsome and more terrible rather than getting better. And so Ruby went off to the doctor again, and when the doctor saw that thing, he just reached for the phone and made the appointment the next Tuesday to have that thing removed at the hospital and went home and reported. And Harry said, well... I had that before God. Now, I'm not advocating that you do this with yours. I'm telling you about Harry. Well, what happened? But he said, he said, I, I still don't feel right about it. Monday came, Bill was off to his job, and Harry was working around the place, and he came into the kitchen. He said, uh, he said, Ruby, I still don't feel right about it. I think God's going to take care of it. She said, I turned on Harry, and I said, now, Harry... The tumor has got to come off. The appointment is tomorrow, and you might as well just, just leave it alone and just pray for me that the doctor will know how to do it. Said Harry turned around, walked out the door, across the lawn, and up through among the trees, up to the top of the hill where they knew he went to pray, and sometimes stayed an hour, and this time he stayed a little longer than an hour. She said, I was standing at the kitchen window watching, wondering where Harry was and when he was going to come back down. When all at once I saw him coming in the lower part of the trees there and coming through past the, uh, the trees, and he was skipping. And he hit the yard and skipped all the way across the yard. And he dashed in the door and he said, Ruby, Ruby, where's the tumor now? And she said, Harry, the tumor is just where. And there was no tumor. There was no tumor. But a few days after that experience at the church, when he took the pastor in, or I took him in, and then he, he prayed for me, he went with that same young man to a church out in the country to attend a revival meeting, and the pastor said, Harry Carter, give us a testimony. And Harry would usually testify a little while in his exhortation, and it was revivalistic, but this time he stood up and he said, Folks, I'm going to heaven right soon. It's going to be a wonderful time. I'm going to see Jesus real soon now. I don't know when, but I just know it's soon. I know he's coming for me. Testified about three minutes like that, saying no exhortation to the people, just the fact that he was going to see Jesus most any time right now. And when he sat down, his head went back on the back of the seat, and he was in another world. He'd gone home. Jesus loved Harry. And Harry loved Jesus. Do you know that that's what God wants to do in our hearts as believers, is to fix us up? Whether we can pray any tumors off of anybody or not, he wants to perfect our love toward him. Cleansing our heart from all sin.
You say, I need it. That's what I need. I know I need it. I need something to give me a single mind and a single eye and a single motive and a single purpose and a single love toward God and toward man. But somehow or another, I just can't, I just can't break down. Well, friend, you better break down. Because if you live by yourself like that, that old carnal self, someday you'll go to hell with yourself. This and I'm through. After I got saved, some time went along. Some time went by. And I had a friend. I had a friend. I love my this friend. I really trusted this friend. It was a friend that I felt like would outlast all other friends. I thought this friend would stand by me. He was a real friend. I really felt he was. But you know, there came the day when that friend let me down. That friend let me clear to the bottom. I had confidence in him. I gained a confidence in him. I felt he would not fail me. I said, if all everybody else fails me, this fellow will not fail me. I can look at him and I'll see him as charting the right course and setting the right example. He will not fail me. And I trusted him. But there came the day when that fellow let me clear down. Now, I know that a lot of you people know that man that was my friend. I don't know that all of you know him personally, but I know that a lot of you know him. And I don't know why, but I feel disposed tonight to expose him right here. You want to know who it was? I mean, I don't like to be a tail-tattler in the wholeness movement, but I'm ready to expose him. That's the first fellow I've ever heard say, sure, I have about that. And I've only mentioned it a couple of times, two different places before tonight. But I really did. I don't necessarily like to expose people. But I think this has come the time in this wholeness movement to expose my friend. And I'm going to give you his name if you're ready. Hold yourself. His name was Richard G. Humble. You see, after I got converted, I began to feel like, with the help of myself, I'm going to make it. And I began to trust self more than God. And then I came to the end. Self let me clear down. He failed me through and through. And it'll be like that in your life. But if you come and present your human heart, present yourself, your spiritual self, on the altar of sacrifice, God will purify your heart, take from it the va last vestige of Adam,
And while you'll still be human and you'll still be tempted and you'll still not have mental perfection and you'll still have a lot of peculiarities in your personality that you'll have to deal with from here on, he'll help you and give you time and he'll help you along with all of them. But tonight, in a moment of time, he can cleanse you through and through. And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. Philip's translation, through and through. Purge you within. And if you're as convicted as I was when Harry Carter, by the goodness of his sanctified life, showed me that I needed to be prayed with that night, you want to hit this altar or hit someplace and say, as for me, I want to go all the way with God. I don't want to hold out at all. I just want to come. If there's anybody here wants to come, feel free to come anytime. I'm not going to put any designs on the altar service as well. If you're just hungry and thirsty enough for the purifying flame, for the sanctifying flame, for the coming of the Holy Ghost to abide in your heart, for the indwelling of the Comforter, and you want to come and give your all. I don't think it'll take you a long time. If you mean business, your knees could hardly hit the floor until you had the blessing. And if you're hungry and thirsty enough for the blessing, it'll lead you here. Your hunger and your thirst with the Holy Ghost helping you will lead you to the place of the blessing. You can come on into Canaan if you will. I don't want to take for granted the heritage of holiness that has been passed on. I don't want to lose the fire. Thank you for listening to Convention Pulpit, a ministry of Interchurch Holiness Convention, featuring Wesleyan voices past and present. For more sermons or for more information, visit www.ihconvention.com. This ministry is made possible through the financial support of our listeners. You may give online at ihconvention.com or send your donation to IHC, Post Office Box 99, New Berlin, Pennsylvania, 17855 USA.